when was the last time that you played? Oh, um, I would say today because I've been chasing my cat around uh, the house. <laughs> so that's one of the ways I get in little daily doses of play. Just a few moments ago. <laughs> and I imagine she lets you know when she needs to play. Oh, yeah. So I have two cats, one of them Siamese, and she is very vocal about she has a lot of opinions and she is constantly letting me know how, how she's feeling. And it's playtime constantly <laughs> as well. Welcome to Lead with a Dash of Play. Here we talk about the how and why of reclaiming playfulness as adults in order to build more connected, innovative, and human-centered workspaces. Isn't that what leadership is all about? I'm your host, Mary Hendra. Let's play. My guest today is Jocelyn Brady. The first introduction I had to Jocelyn was through the wicked humor that she uses in her LinkedIn posts. We've had the opportunity to share a number of conversations and events since then, and I am always struck by the incredible amount of research and thinking she does on this topic, as well as the application to individuals. So far on this podcast, we've given some attention to the intersection between leadership and play, when we find ourselves leading, managing teams, creating events or gatherings for groups of people to be able to build compassion, innovate together, and develop stronger communication between each other. Play, however, is equally powerful in the way that it might shift our internal spaces. And that's the domain of Jocelyn Brady as a brain coach. So how did you get to where you are playing with people's brains? (laughs) Ooh, um, let's see. I first discovered neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change itself. Um, at any age when my dad had a stroke and that was now, uh, I don't know, 15 or so years ago. Um, he lost his ability to speak and then he regained it. And so in this process, I'm learning that, wow, uh, brains connections can be broken literally, you know, and you can be, they can be damaged and then you can still learn to regenerate repair. And just that, just the notion that that was even a possibility and that I saw it happen was brain blowing. It was like, wow, that's so incredible. What else might be possible? But in the meantime, I was still getting my degree. I got, you know, an English undergraduate and then eventually my MFA in creative nonfiction writing. I love language. I love stories. And then I got into, you know, uh, being a consultant for these big brands on brand narratives. And that turned into training people on how to tell better stories. The more and more I did that, the more and more I realized like, wow, I am so much more fascinated by the stories people are telling themselves and others, their brain stories, because that influences everything, uh, how you feel at work, how you interact mm-hmm. uh, and treat each other, 
um, and how, how able, capable you and confident you feel in tapping your creativity and questioning things that don't make sense, you know, maintaining your curiosity with kindness. So, um, then, you know, it's like, maybe I'm going to go back to school to be a neuroscientist. And I was like, no, I'm not, I just got my MFA. I'm not going back. I'm running a business. That's crazy. So I got, uh, I found the neuro leadership Institute and got certified as a brain coach through them, which is great. So you, you just learn the neurological and, um, the neuroscience like foundations and underpinnings of how thinking works, how that translates into language. Um, so that's what I, that's what I started doing. Now, mind you, I kept it largely a secret because I was embarrassed to call myself a coach as someone who works with words. I had such a hard time with that word. (laughs) And, um, it wasn't really until COVID came along and my whole situation turned upside down as it does did for many people, all my contracts vanished. And that's when I was like, okay, well, um, you know, I grew up on a, on an active volcano. I've been through literal eruption, losing a house. I know what it's like, (laughs) luckily have, uh, learned how to rebuild. So I applied that again. And then just like, I'm embracing this thing that I've really wanted to be doing. So here we are brain coaching. I imagine brain coaching includes more than just play. Yes. It's uh yeah, I think, you know, having the language of play and seeing it through that lens is especially helpful when going through those, you know, we talked about earlier, some of those stickier situations and thinking, Um, but yeah, I mean, it's now that I'm thinking about it though, I'm like, maybe is everything kind of play? Like, is it just a way of framing (laughs) how we see, because even really hard cognitive work, even challenges can have moments of play, but they don't, I guess they don't always feel that way if we're feeling like frustrated and, um, but yeah, I mean, there's strategy involved, there's conveying neuroscience and then it's people, uh, creating new behaviors for themselves through little tiny habits. And part of that is a big part of that is how do you make, how do you play with those to make them fun? So you actually do them. Yeah. And see the integration. And it also, uh, reminds me of how sometimes when we're, when we're growing up, we play with different identities. I mean, we may even play with changing our name, but we, we definitely play with different future identities and with different, ways that we want to interact in the world because we're figuring ourselves out. Right. Yeah. So it strikes me that part of what you're doing is giving, giving people permission to play again with their identity, with their way of being in the world. Yeah. That's such a good way of, of, of putting that and seeing that it's like playing with who you are and who you, who you're becoming. And even, yeah. I haven't thought of saying it that way, who you're becoming is a really powerful construction. So you see yourself as this continually evolving being versus the tendency to be like, well, this is just the way I am. Right. Right. I'm curious because sometimes with, with children, there is a sense that girls and boys play differently. Do you see any gender differences or do you see play play out in a different way because of gender dynamics as adults? Ooh, um, actually, (laughs) I was obsessing about this recently. I was like, are there differences between the female and male brain? Is that a real thing or not? 
what are the implications? Like, so what either way? And so I found this big study on, um, there are like a lot of references to the cognitive differences between men and women. And they're going through like kind of validating this. And then I found this study, March of 2021, massive study reveals few differences between men's and women's brains. Uh, you know, uh, medicine, this is the three decades of research, basically saying, nope, all that other stuff is wrong. <laughs> this is what I love about science. We have no idea. <laughs> we're like, we're, we're, this play in a nutshell. Like, oh, let's see if we can have curiosity and see if we can find things out, have a better understanding, maintaining the cognitive flexibility required to keep that going. Right. So I don't really answer that question succinctly, like men and women. I think absolutely there are, there are cultural differences that we've been raised with that influence our thinking and behaviors. And those, um, don't just vanish. And there's, so there's a lot of narratives that have been built up and there's probably a ton of similarities when you look at, you know, all women probably have had experiences with, you know, similar being told to smile or being judged on their appearance in a way that is um, a little more excessive than it would be with a man or in a different way. So yeah, I think it's tough, right? We all have, we all play differently. We all have different um, tendencies and it's so individual that it's hard for me to, to uh, make a hard stance. I got in trouble in high school for smiling too much in class. Oh. <laughs> literally got the opposite. I never got disciplinary action problems, but I was written up by a teacher and had to take this note home to my parents that said, Mary smiles too much in class. <laughs> that oh my my dad like my dad was a nuclear physicist my mom was you know well educated they looked at that and they looked at me and they're like um okay <laughs> we'll, we'll sign off that we saw this we don't really know what to do with that <laughs> yeah they should just, like cross off the word too she smiles smiles much <laughs> Um, when you were speaking, I, I thought of a quote. I sometimes collect quotes about play because I think it's fascinating to, to hear how people talk about it. And this one is attributed to Albert Einstein saying, play is the highest form of research. Mm. And, and I, I thought of it with what you said, because if you're connecting play, curiosity, in some ways, almost research about ourselves, and I'm curious whether that's a sentiment that you agree with. Would you expand on that or give it a caveat? Mm, I, I love it. I don't think I've heard that one. Uh, the highest form of research. First thought is yes. Somebody summed it up correctly. Go Einstein. <laughs> if only he had done that a few other times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> man, that guy. Um, yeah. The highest form of research. Yeah. Because what is research? It's like, it's digging in with the purpose of understanding something more deeply. And you have to have a curious and open mind to let all of that information in and sort of allow yourself to see patterns and, and then remove all notions of patterns and check your own assumptions and play with your thoughts and perspectives uh, on what you're seeing. 
So absolutely. Yeah. On her website, when Jocelyn talks about the shift she made from creating brand stories to brain science, she identifies that she wanted to help brains tell better stories so people could live well. There's so much to that. And I encourage you to really listen as she describes her big goals and what it means for us as individuals to really examine the stories that our brains tell us. What I want is like help people play to their brain's creative potential um, and create what they most want before they die. <laughs> no big deal. So <laughs> talk about, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I do like to talk about deathbed you a lot and putting things in that context. So you think about really on your deathbed, what is the most important thing you want for your life? What do you want to experience? What do you want to create? Um, what do you, how do you want your relationships, uh, to feel and, you know, um, how do you want to influence impact people, all that kind of stuff. And, um, one of the things people say most on their deathbeds, according to that Bronnie Ware, um, you know, palliative care, end of life care nurse huh? is, um, people wish that they, had been true to themselves instead of trying to fit somebody else's expectations. And they wish that they had allowed more laughter and silliness in their lives. So that's a big part of what I do in um, brain coaching. It's just, just helping people understand their brains better so they can experience more play and figure out how they get more into flow and, um, you know, have deeper, more fulfilling connections uh, with themselves and others. Laughter, silliness, flow. I've heard these terms sometimes connected with play. Do you have a definition of play that you like to use or reference? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think I defer a lot to, like, I loved, uh, I love Dr. Stuart Brown's work um, and his book on play. And he, you know, talks about it in the context of play as something, as an activity you enjoy that doesn't have a purpose necessarily. Mm. I really like that. And I, I think of play as just something that feels good and, and is silly. Uh, so I think it, you know, it doesn't have to have some, I, I'm thinking of this in, in, in like context of talking to people in, in corporate <laughs> places. Sometimes they're yeah. like, ew, I don't want to, what do you mean play? I'm not doing a silly dance at my desk, you lunatic. And it doesn't <laughs> have to be that. It could just be like, you know, maybe it's, um, uh, just the way that you, maybe it's doodling something, a little happy face to yourself. It'd be yeah. very small thing. It doesn't have to be uh, anyone else's definition. I love that. Uh, because it reminds me how personal play is, right. And, and what I find enjoyable, maybe something that another person just finds horrifying and vice versa. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Like improv games. Some people go, no, they usually enjoy it in spite of themselves, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sometimes it takes some, some warming up to it. Right. Yeah. Um, do you find that you use play more for yourself or for your clients? Uh, I, th I think both. Um, I know that. Okay. So for myself, uh, as you know, when I'm feeling, um, uh, I'm taking myself too seriously. And by that, I mean, I feel like I'm 
I'm facing a lot of resistance and I'm grumbling about it and I'm not very maybe kind to myself about it. Like, mm-hmm. God, just do the thing. Um, what are you waiting for? What's taking so long? That kind of self-talk that comes up. Um, so when I'm feeling that I'm like, okay, probably a little dose of play is in order. And I might put on my penguin suit, which is a real, <laughs> a full, a full on penguin suit. Cause it just like makes it so ridiculous. And I like make a video of myself. I'm like, you cannot take yourself seriously wearing an adult penguin suit. So, or a child penguin suit, I suppose. Um, so that's for myself as an example. And then with clients, it's like, you know, a lot of the times you're, it's talking about how you play with your thoughts because it can feel so heavy sometimes when you're facing thoughts that are not very helpful. So it's looking at, okay, how can we pull them apart? How can we even turn them into little personas? Or, um, I had a client who turned her different personas of herself into, um, the wicked witch. Uh, she had another name and then, um, what's her name? The, the good witch, um, Glenn, Glenda, Glenda. Glenda. And she, they even had little voices, you know, like the, <laughs> oh this is the one that says you're doing the wrong thing and then you have oh you're doing such a great job (laughs) (laughs) so there's a great a great way of playing with things that can feel really sticky and uncomfortable one of my first introductions to you was your tiny tips which to me seemed a very playful way of conveying really um well-researched ideas about brain science Yeah, that was a perfect illustration of me finding a way to play with something that was really important to me and that can be very, um, you know, I do put a ton of time into researching. It's really important to me that I'm doing justice by the, the scientists who spend their lives figuring this stuff out and building on it. And, um, so it's like, how do I turn all of the, like 20 hours of something into, into one to four minutes of Oh God, can we pay attention and have fun with this? Um, and you know, we, we experience, we learn better when we're having fun. So that's what I love about, you know, taking heavy science, neuroscience, psychology, even weaving that in, um, and turning it into a playful format that feels like how my brain uh, reacts and responds to stuff too, which is a little chaotic, but inserting some moments from pop culture and stuff like that. You spoke about spontaneous play, right? The cat comes into the room, needs to play now. Or even when you realize I need to play, I'm, I'm getting too, I'm getting too caught up in myself or too serious. Let me play. Um, are there times when you find you need to, or you have to deliberately create a space for play either for yourself or for another person? Hmm. You mentioned giving permission earlier. So I think that is universally true is like just that allowing yourself to acknowledge you, you need vitamin play and yeah. Giving yourself that permission, creating that space, uh, just to be okay with it. And I think it, it can feel really tough uh, for a lot of us who, you know, have been told to be more serious or professional, whatever those mean. Um, and yeah, just kind of let your guard down is like creating that space of like, Hey, you are in a safe psychological safety plays a huge role right in play because right. we can't, if we feel like we're going to be punished or harmed, uh, by 
freely expressing ourselves in a silly way, it's less likely to happen. So yeah, I think I think that sort of the more philosophical answer to that question, I guess, is like creating the psychological safety is the most important thing, maybe. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, with yourself, it I think self-compassion is crucial um, to recognize if and when you are saying things or, or treating your, yourself in a harmful way. Um, and that often comes in the form of things that we're not necessarily conscious of or aware of at first, you know, God, such an idiot. I can't believe I forgot that here, here we go again. You're never going to do good at this thing, or you don't know how to do that. You never will. Um, I'm no good at fill in the blank. Right. And just going, Oh, huh. There, I said that thing. I wonder where that will lead. Probably not to me learning how to do better at that thing, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So I think that, that compassion is the very self-compassion and an outward compassion is, is reflecting back kindness on people and not to confuse that with if it, as a, you know, as the coach, one of my jobs is paying attention to the language you're using to yourself and calling attention to that and pausing, right? Hey, did you notice what you just said here? Did you notice this pattern? I, I noticed that you said these words, what does that imply what does that feel like just allowing that moment of pause and reminding people this isn't about this is not is about releasing judgment it's just being very conscientious and aware of it and then going huh curiosity how can I reframe and redirect I appreciate what you're describing because it strikes me that we think of play as being so free and you know this completely um you know, space of not, of a lack of judgment of, of, um, I mean, hopefully not like a bad judgment, but a, a lack of judgment on us for being playful and a, and a place where we don't have experience, right? We play with something that we're not yet professionally getting paid to do that thing. Right. Um, but what you describe is also a space of vulnerability that if we're if we're playing and we're not professional at it, we're imperfect and we may fail. And that can be really scary. Yeah, absolutely. I think even those words are, they they can be so pernicious perfection and failure. So to me, I see them as like perfection. What is that? It's, um, uh, an impossible, fantastical, uh, fantasy. Uh, it's an ideal. And, and because it's that, First of all, it's never attainable, but also it's, it's brittle. It's fragile um, because you see it as this, if you hold someone, if you like, if you think of people who are like, that person is so perfect or X, Y, Z is so perfect, then it always needs to be the exact same thing that you hold in your mind forever. So it can never change. It could never um, have a bad day, you know, mm. and same with failure. Like what, it, how do we, what's our relationship to that word? And I think instead of uh, the traditional definitions are thinking that you didn't do something correctly. Um, that it is, you, you just learned something, right. It's like, you didn't, it's, yeah. I, I didn't pour the, uh, I made bad coffee. So I failed at coffee or, Hey, I learned another way that doesn't work for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, 
there's there's something that's very um, compassionate about that towards others as well. Because I, I, when you described perfection as brittle, I think about how we sometimes hold another person up as ideal or amazing, and we put them on this pedestal. And if our brain is associating that with perfection, with the perfect model of what to be, we don't allow them to change. Exactly. But when we engage in play, we're allowing both of us to change. Yeah. And try stuff out and there is no right answer, you know, wrong. And I think that if you look at like rough and tumble play of animals, uh, young animals, right. They're learning about boundaries. They're learning about how, you know, what is the, where's the line. So between play and, Ooh, you, you just hurt me, you know, going, Oh, I won't go that far again. So now I know better that, that I don't want, I want this to be fun for both of us. Right. How can people best connect with you, be inspired by you, play with you? (laughs) Uh, Betterbrainstories.com is my brain reframing little play tool. So it'll spit out a story at the end that, that reframes a narrative that isn't helpful. Your BS, it reframes your BS to be good BS. Yay. Um, and jocelynbrady.com is my website and I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. So that's just Jocelyn Brady on LinkedIn and at jostle them, uh, J O C E L T H E M on Instagram and YouTube. Are you still doing tiny tips? I am. Yes. Uh, every other week I'm an experimenting with shorts right now. So they're one minute versions. Fabulous. Could you leave our listeners with one invitation to play at work? Mm. Well, one of my absolute favorite exercises, you know, this one is sometimes I get in trouble for saying this, which is usually when I know I'm in the wrong room, but it's called <laughs> shit storming, shit storming because it's fun. Um, if you're not allowed to call it shit storming, we call it, what is it? Uh, sell it to me, but shit storming people will know it's not brainstorming. So it's like, you're, <laughs> you're meant to focus on the shitty thing. The first thing you do is you think of the shittiest, like the dumbest, worst, most ridiculous product idea that you can possibly think of. And everyone just spits it out, you know, from, uh, fishnet stockings to, I don't know what's a, a kitten mittens. One of my favorites, um, a cardboard rooftop. And, uh, once you kind of have that exercise going, now you're going to pick one, just vote on one. And everyone thinks of why this is the most awesome thing to have ever existed. You can break people up into teams. They could pick different product ideas. And the point of that is you're, you know, exercising, you're getting creative about something that's ridiculous. We are all fantastic at coming up with bad ideas because we don't, we, it's like a competition for the worst idea. It's fun. We don't feel like we have, we're not pressured to say the right thing, the correct answer. Ooh, people are going to think it's dumb. It's like, no, we want them to think it's dumb. Right. So yay. (laughs) And, and then uh, people, yeah, just pitch it at the end. And it's a really, really fantastic way of getting people into a more creative, relaxed, playful mindset. So when you are uh, approaching, um, you know, a a serious uh, product or solution um, brainstorm, the mind has warmed up and it is primed for creative ideas without shutting them down prematurely. I love that. Do you have a favorite best worst idea that was pitched to you? Oh, um, Oh, reusable toilet paper has like weirdly come up multiple times (laughs) or some variation of that. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for um for being on the podcast today. Thank you. This is uh this is a delight. I'll play with you anytime. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lead with a Dash of Play podcast. Reza Zaidi and Joanna Stevens created and provided the beautifully playful and reflective music you hear in this podcast. The song is titled Holding Rain. This podcast was created out of curiosity, and I hope you'll share your thoughts and questions with me. Email me at mary at maryhendra.com. Or join the conversation on LinkedIn, redefining play and reclaiming this leadership skill for its potential to bring authenticity and joy into our professional spaces.